and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, an idea, or figure from history, explain its origins, and talk about how it influences political discourse today, for good or ill. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Eye newspaper, and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Does Not. This week we're talking about nuclear war, which thankfully remains an idea rather than a reality, Mm. and one we've been worrying about since even before the first atomic bomb was invented in 1945. Now, this is going to be another two-parter. The reason we're doing more of these is I think that we found when doing the, the last two seasons that sometimes we were having to cut out a lot of interesting stuff, either in the edit or even just in our research and going, well, we're not going to be able to fit this in. And uh, and then we thought that maybe that was unwise and maybe that if you're going to do <laughs> all this kind of research and get really fascinated by something and want to kind of explain it to listeners in an entertaining way, then that we should just be able to sort of spread out a bit more. So this is a two-parter. There's going to be uh, another one later in the season just so we can get more out of it. This is the Dorian like as a religious principle, can't abide anyone cutting the things that he says. He <laughs> finds it like deeply, deeply upsetting on a, on a spiritual level, I think. Well, why would you, why, <laughs> why, why would you mutilate a masterpiece, I suppose? Ian, this feels a little more timely than one would like, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're probably talking about it more now than we've been talking about it at any time in my life, I think. Right, yeah. I mean, because even if you think about the end of the Cold War, you know, well before the Berlin Wall came down, it was starting to fade away as a real-life concern, and then Ukraine hits. And once Russia invades Ukraine, all of a sudden you're talking about nuclear war just simply because one of those countries is armed with nukes. And the not-so-subtle threats that you get from Putin, which, as we'll see, have a very long heritage as to how you use these kinds of weapons, immediately hit the front page. I find the way that people talk about it now very problematic. We're going oh, to get to mm-hmm. that. There is a certain kind of glib hysteria, if that's a thing, oh, wow. uh, which I think does in fact serve Putin and really has not much to do with the long and sort of honourable tradition of um, of anti-nuclear campaigning. Oh, I thought you were going to say the long and honourable tradition of nuclear threats. <laughs> so I <laughs> a expect one, a better class a wonderful that. tradition. But weirdly, it does keep popping up, like the G7 summit, which is taking place as we're recording, but, but obviously not when you're listening to this, uh, is in Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Yes, quite right. The yeah. Oppenheimer film is coming out. Right, Christopher Nolan's mm-hmm. Oppenheimer film in the summer. Uh, so we're going to have a little bit of oppie in there. <laughs> as he loved to be called. And also we should say, I mean, we should say that part of the reason that we're doing this is, well, I remember I looked over a chapter of your book that has not that comes out next year yeah. on this. And I think we were both surprised by how emotional I became while reading that chapter mm. because I was really affected by it. Like I just, I felt like your book for people who don't know is it's sort of the end of the world, but predominantly, you know, looking at it through a cultural lens in a variety of ways. And all I'd ever known was the nuclear issue as a political issue, mm. right? And so you just use these terms, the trident or deterrence or first strike capacity. And it was just these blocks of known political sort of units. And then when you actually get presented, when you're reminded with what it is that you are actually talking about, yeah. like the genocide machine, you know, Armageddon, the end of days. And I think primarily that that sense of like the, the moment that the human species learns that it can obliterate itself is just like a, it's really scary and, and it opens up all of these sort of psychological ideas. And I found myself 
utterly discombobulated by reading that chapter, which at the time was not what you wanted. What you wanted was, you know, have I structured this properly? Yeah, and it yeah. was like, well, I don't know, man, but you've just destroyed my brain. So I think that kind of led us to where we are now. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the, you know, into military strategy and the Manhattan Project and so on, but also about some of the psychology and the culture and what it meant during the Cold War to live with the reality mm. of nuclear weapons and the, and the kind of the, the sword of nuclear war hanging over you. Um, <laughs> Considerably, uh, considerably more upsetting than I think some of us, you know, would remember. <laughs> I am, yes, regrettably a little older than you. So this was part of my childhood. Things like when the wind blows and two tribes, mm -hmm. these were like huge cultural artifacts, and that that was really like 1984. I would say was the last year of like serious distress. Right. Around nuclear war. And then it faded a bit that Gorbachev comes in. But I do remember that. And I do remember as a kid not being able to work out how there was this, this absolutely appalling world destroying possibility that was omnipresent and let you didn't really talk about it that much. You right, sort of got right. on with it. And then every now and then there would be like a film or a record or whatever, you know, that would make you think about it. How old were you when you remember sort of clocking it as a thing? Probably I was around 10. I think it was Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes. I think that was what introduced me to the idea of nuclear war because there was loads of, Paul Morley put loads of amazing um, new data on the on the sleeve and 12-inch remixes would use like real warning what to do in the event. Official government right. announcements what to yeah. do in the event of a nuclear attack. So I got really thinking about it. I didn't actually see threads at the time, but I think that was something that traumatized a lot of people. Thank God, because I was 10. It's quite I'm not ready for to, threads. But just even for a 10-year-old, it's just quite a thing to do to a 10-year-old to be like, by the way, there's this weapon that might go right. off, that the whole world explodes. <laughs> you know? I don't know. It's quite a hard psychological thing for a 10-year-old to come to terms with. Now, strangely, the OED does not have an entry for nuclear war. Huh. Uh, it does have one for nuclear bomb, which is quite useful. Uh, noun, a bomb that derives its power from nuclear fission or fusion, an atom bomb or thermonuclear bomb. First citation from the Engineering Journal in 1945. In view of the source of the energy, the current terms atomic bomb and atomic power might well be replaced by the more exact terms nuclear bomb and nuclear power. Huh. So, As indeed they were. The devices that America dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were atomic bombs, or they were known as atomic bombs. And for the next few years, people talked about atomic war. And only with the invention of the hydrogen bomb in 1952 did nuclear or thermonuclear war become the term that everybody used. But as you can see, the OED combines the two. So we're not going to be too strict about the distinction. Like in my, in my book, I, I am quite strict. I don't start using the term nuclear war until the 50s. But I mean, I don't think we need to be too strict. No, here, right? I mean, but there is, of course, the big distinction between what happens when the hydrogen bomb comes, which is oh, that right. until, until that yeah. point, you're talking about a really big bomb. But at that point, once hydrogen bomb comes in, you're talking about the end of the actual world. Right. So when people talk about the bomb, capital B, we're really talking about two quite different yeah. Uh, yeah. devices, two different ideas. So as we'll see, the term atomic bomb is much older than the actual device. Uh, and the story begins much further back than you might think. So in 1895, Röntgen discovers X-rays, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's a torrent of breakthroughs, the electron, alpha rays, beta rays, gamma rays, radioactivity, and so on. And the chemists Ernest Rutherford and Frederick Soddy realized that radioactivity came from the disintegration of atoms and their transmutation into other elements. So it's almost like a lot of people compare this to alchemy. Like it's mm -hmm. literally turning into something else. Uh, before Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, uh, Soddy 
in various lectures, said that we should think of matter as an immense storehouse of energy that can be released. In 1904, he says, the man who puts his hand on the lever by which a parsimonious nature regulates so jealously the output of this store of energy (laughs) would possess a weapon by which he could destroy the earth if he chose. (laughs) So 40 years before it exists, Mm -hmm. you've got someone going, "This this could destroy the world. Now, H.G. Wells, who loved destroying the world, mm. uh, ran with this idea, 1913 novel, The World Set Free, which he dedicated to Frederick Soddy. And he invented the phrase atomic bomb. Oh, wow. H.G. Uh, Wells did? Yeah. Huh. He used the scary new device to blow up most of the world. Uh, but of course, he had no idea how it might work because nobody did. <laughs> and in fact, if you look at the fiction really up till 1945, you have things like disintegrator rays, mm. a flask of something that if you dropped it could <laughs> blow up London, you know. People didn't really understand how to, how to build a bomb. They just knew that splitting the atom would be this, this really colossal form of explosive. And between the wars... Because the First World War introduces, you know, poison gas and the tank. Mm. So this is obsession among writers for super weapons. And a common belief that super weapons could be so destructive that they would end war because nobody would dare use them. Right. Which, of course, as we'll see, sort of becomes the basis of deterrence theory. Mm-hmm. You know, you build these things in order not to use them. Mm. Uh, 1921 article called How to Make War Impossible, Thomas Edison argued that government should continue to produce instruments of death so terrible that presently all men and every nation would well know that war would mean the end of civilization. Mm. A foolproof plan, right? Because mm-hmm. nobody- Unfortunately, Alfred Nobel said this about dynamite. Fritz Haber said this about poison gas. Everyone who's invented a super weapon. So the inventor of the machine gun, I think, said the the same thing. There's always this idea that, oh, at this point, we'll definitely not be lunatics and just use it indiscriminately against each other. It's like, oh, no, look, we've done the same thing again. Obviously, there were quite a lot of people pushing back and going, oh, no, they will use it. Mm. There's this weird fact that Wells, in his novel, guessed that someone would split the atom in 1933. That's when his science does. And John Cockcroft and Ernest Walton did that a year early. Hmm. All the early experiments, though, consume more energy than they produce. So Ernest Rutherford, who's sort of you know, one of the fathers of this, was really sceptical and said that, that anyone who looked for a source of power in the transformation of atoms was talking moonshine. Okay. Now, one person who read his remarks in the Times was a Hungarian refugee physicist called Leo Szilard, mm-hmm. uh, who was staying in London at the time, having fled Europe for obvious reasons <laughs> in 1933. And he was so angry about this that he threw the paper down, stormed out, went for a walk <laughs> around Bloomsbury. <laughs> and during his walk, it's quite a sort of famous story in this, mm. it suddenly struck him that you could create a chain reaction by bombarding atoms with neutrons. So he was this sweet, eccentric, owlish-looking man who uh, studied with the likes of Einstein, Schrödinger, and Heisenberg in Berlin in the 1920s. Like, all, all sort of all the most famous. Yeah, it's like the Avengers of, yeah. It's an it's, um, absolutely incredible scene. Um, but he was described as an intellectual bumblebee because he had all these great ideas that he couldn't follow through, and he was very bad at selling them, and he couldn't really express them properly. So he spends the next five years trying to get funding for research into chain reactions. But he does things like, constantly mentioning this H.G. Wells novel (laughs) and sending copies of the novel, going, read this science fiction novel from 20 years ago and give me money. (laughs) And obviously... Did um, that work? No, it didn't work. Um, So he gets increasingly frustrated, leaves Britain, goes over to America, 
And again, just sort of pesters everyone, gets on everyone's nerves. There's a great physicist he ended up working with later called Isidore Rabi, who at one point went, you have too many ideas, go away. (laughs) (laughs) Just like terribly (laughs) annoying. Hmm. And then he really starts to get desperate when two German scientists in 1938 discover nuclear fission, which is the key Mm -hmm. key process. Mm -hmm. It's not a chain reaction, but it's what enables Mm -hmm. chain reaction. And he says to another Hungarian emigre, Edward Teller, who we will come back to, he says, you know what fission means? It means bombs. And which country has discovered fission? It's Germany in Mm. 1938. Mm. So Szilard decides that America needs to build a bomb before Germany does. That is his main motivation. And the only person he thinks that President Roosevelt will listen to is Einstein, the most famous scientist in the world Mm. who's living in America at that time. So he goes to talk to Einstein. Einstein has never even thought about nuclear bombs. No way. Just hadn't even occurred to him that this huh. was a thing that could that could, could happen. Huh. Other physicists who ended up working on the bomb, like Niels Bohr and mm-hmm. Enrico Fermi, thought they were about 30 years away. Right. But Szilard writes a letter for Einstein to sign, sends it to Roosevelt, who starts looking into it. And Einstein later called the letter his one great mistake. But there was some justification, the danger that the Germans would make them. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, I mean, that was a legitimate concern, right? From what they knew at the time. The time. Imagine if Hitler had had a bomb. In fact, Szilard said that, you know, if you discovered fission and chain reactions five years earlier, because then potentially Hitler could have had the bomb in 1939. Yeah, Jesus Christ. And World War II would have been over in a week. Oh, Jesus Christ. So it takes three years for various reasons and uh, collaborating with, uh, with Churchill to bring some Brits in. In June 1942, Roosevelt approves a crash program to build a bomb codenamed the Manhattan Project so that people wouldn't really know what it was about. <laughs> um, in the end, it costs $2 billion, equivalent to $34 billion now, the most mm-hmm. expensive weapon ever made. Employs around 130,000 people around the country, many of whom, like Szilard, were refugees from the Nazis. Huh. Uh, in 1945, the New York Times actually published a piece with the bold headline, Thanks to Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Hitler basically (laughs) delivered all the physicists that they needed. So it's really spread out in various places across America. Szilard is working in Chicago, uh, the Metallurgical Laboratory, which is another code code name, uh, on nuclear reactors and helps Enrico Fermi produce the world's first ever chain reaction at the end of 42. But the bomb is designed and built, and this is the the famous built, uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, which Mm -hmm. is basically a community built from scratch in the desert under the command of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And he was this sort of lanky, bohemian, chain-smoking academic, and just phenomenal, phenomenal on the fags. Um, (laughs) He was into sort of poetry and Eastern religion and exotic food and had like curly hair and was, you know, this sort of rather hippie-ish, proto-hippie-ish character. But he kind of gets a haircut, starts dressing properly, doesn't talk so much about the uh, poetry and Hinduism um, and becomes an almost, you know, becomes this inspirational leader of men. The people love him and they love what they're doing because they're on the frontier of physics and they're helping to beat Hitler. Yeah. What they didn't know was that Hitler was actually scared of atomic power. Really wasn't into hugely into rockets, you know, right. V1, V2, and, sure, sure. and so on. Not really into atomic bombs. And Heisenberg, who was in charge of the Nazi bomb program, just didn't really think it was possible. And they, they never had the concerted, they never had the investment, they never had the expertise, they never had that concerted effort that America had. And in fact, when Heisenberg heard about Hiroshima, 
He was actually a prisoner of war at that time. He literally couldn't believe the Americans had managed to do it. Huh. Like it took him a while to accept that this was a thing that had huh. happened. So ironically, this whole fear that Hitler was going to get there first, it was never going to happen. Mm -hmm. But of course, nobody knew that. Jesus Christ, considering what comes next up until our own day, that's a really tragic fact. Yeah. So after Hitler commits suicide, April 1945, the, the more morally conflicted scientists like Leo Szilard decided that the bomb was no longer necessary because it was really about Hitler, not Japan for them. So they, they basically said, look, it's immoral to use it mm. and likely to cause an arms race. So they make these various doomed efforts to stop it being used. Or maybe one, argument, one idea is that you test it somewhere and show Japan this is what we could do um, as like a warning shot. Mm -hmm. All of these ideas are rejected. And President Truman later said that if the public found out he had a weapon that could have ended the war and hadn't used it, then he would have been lynched. Mm -hmm. uh, Oppenheimer also said, look, it, it's basically, it's inevitable. Secretary of War Henry Lewis Stimson says, the common objective throughout the war was to be the first to produce an atomic weapon and use it. The entire purpose of the production of a military weapon on no other ground could the wartime expedite of so much time and money have been justified. Now, of course, that's coming from the military perspective. Right. But his whole thing was like, look, by the time that we pump billions into a weapon in the middle of the war, we are going to use the weapon. And then another argument made by Edward Teller is that old Thomas Edison argument. He goes, our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people, mm. <laughs> i.e. dropping mm. the bomb on civilians. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. That island idea... If you just want to demonstrate what it does, that allows you to do it. There was some nervousness in the US of what if it doesn't work and we'll just look like real chumps, yeah, yeah. right? But like, you know, Japan is on the verge of collapse. I mean, there's, it's really just a question, you know, even those who want to continue the war, it's about improving the terms of the peace. They know that it's, it's, it's going to stop. It's as grim to talk about, but the death is part of it. Mm. You know, it's not enough just to show, but you have to kill, right, for, for the real psychological effect of the bomb to take hold. Los Alamos actually designed two bombs, completely different kinds, really. One was Little Boy, which used uranium and was dropped on Hiroshima. And the other was Fat Man, which used plutonium, different, more complicated kind of trigger and was dropped on Nagasaki. Hmm. So Little Boy, one, it was simpler. Two, they didn't have enough uranium to test it. But Fat Man needed to be tested. So the atomic age begins really on July 16th, 1945 in the morning on a site near Los Alamos that Oppenheimer called Trinity, mm -hmm. after a, um, a line from a poem by John Donne. It's a very Oppenheimer. Yes, touch. yes. And I've read a lot of accounts of people watching it. So many of the people involved in the Manhattan Project were, were watching that event. One said it was the nearest thing to doomsday that one could possibly imagine. Mm. Another one later said, suddenly the day of judgment was the next day and has been ever oh, since. Oppenheimer famously thought, but did not say, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, right? That's kind of the thing that everyone knows about Oppenheimer, sure, sure. I think, yeah. which is a line from one of his favorite books, the Bhagavad Gita. So it's entirely credible that he did think that, but he didn't actually say it out loud. And virtually everyone talks about it in religious terms. It's like it's Genesis, it's Revelation. It's, yeah, Jesus Christ. And even the official language about it sort of was biblical. So at the time, all Oppenheimer says is it worked. <laughs> Just less poetic. Uh, and I guess that's why people write movies and plays about Oppenheimer, because they're, they're, they're awestruck, they're terrified, they're apprehensive, but they're also really proud. Hmm. It's like, we pulled it off. 
Now, to this day, thankfully, the only atomic bombs used against people were dropped by America on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August the 6th and August the 9th. Let's talk about, I mean, so what happens at that moment? This is from Paul Ham, who's the author of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The weapon exploded directly above Shima Hospital in the center of Hiroshima, instantly killing all patients, doctors, and nurses. The heat wave charred every living thing within a 500-meter radius and scorched uncovered skin at two kilometers. Water in tanks and ponds boiled. Leaves in distant parks turned crinkly brown, then to ash. A man in rags cycled around and around with what appeared to be a piece of charcoal fastened to his bicycle. It was the remains of his child. Just afterwards, a military strategist called Bernard Brody, who plays a huge role in sort of nuclear strategy afterwards, says this thing that sounds very simple and is in fact, I think, so profound that it encompasses everything about what follows. He says, everything about the atomic bomb is overshadowed by the twin facts that it exists and that its destructive power is fantastically great. Lots of things follow from this moment, but the two facts you can just never get past yeah. is it exists and its destructive power is unimaginable. It wasn't just a weapon. Uh, one reporter who went there a few weeks later said, Hiroshima does not look like a bombed city. It looks as if a monster steamroller has passed over it and squashed it out of existence. Mm -hmm. The language, there's various people, John Hersey, Robert J. Lifton, interviewed survivors called Hibakusha. And it's sort of, it's not obviously horrific, but it's almost as if something supernatural has yeah. descended upon them. It's like an angry god. It's a monster. It's the reason why the Japanese end up incarnating the bomb as Godzilla. Right, right. It, it is just mm -hmm. like a monster that wants to destroy everything. Mm -hmm. Now, Oppenheimer is famously tormented. He is the most famously guilty person because he was the, the, the guy in charge. Uh, he told President Truman that he had blood on his hands. And the president said to his aide, don't let that cry baby in here again. <laughs> Just absolutely disgusted. The vice president, Henry Wallace, says, I never saw a man in such an extremely nervous state as Oppenheimer. He seemed to feel that the destruction of the entire human race was imminent. Mm -hmm. Now, this is his farewell address to Los Alamos mm -hmm. in the autumn of 45. Remember that he has been this inspirational leader. He's the one that's made it happen. And he goes, if atomic bombs are to be added as new weapons to the arsenals of a warring world or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind will curse the names of Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The peoples of this world must unite or they will perish. This war that has ravaged so much of the earth has written these words. The atomic bomb has spelled them out for all men to understand. Mm-hmm. Now, that is an astonishing thing to hear yeah. because there were other scientists at Los Alamos who felt like he did. And there were others that just thought, we cut short the war. Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer's just like, yeah, this is, we've created something awful, maybe for the right reasons, but something awful. But the angst, we're talking about, I mean, there's a whole argument you can have about, was it justified? Some people say Hiroshima was justified, Nagasaki was a war crime. You know, it was only three days later they should have given Japan more time to surrender. Oh, interesting, yeah. They were prepping a third bomb. I mean, you know, and what they were going to do a third if, if the emperor had it, didn't surrender. And in one source, I heard that the plane that was going to drop it was called Necessary Evil. Right, Jesus Christ, yeah. But the, so the angst was actually not about what had happened, which 85% of Americans supported. Sure. And which, as pointed out, killed fewer people than the firebombing of Tokyo. Mm. I mean, between 100 and 200,000 mm -hmm, people, mm -hmm. a lot of people in horrendous ways. But it wasn't as if... Japanese civilians had not been obliterated 
by America before then. It was actually about what might happen. So Vannevar Bush, amazing figure, this computer pioneer who helped set up the Manhattan Project, said it was fear of the future that concentrated attention on the atomic bomb. And that's what we see with some of the scientists went on to invent the doomsday clock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it really flipped. So actually the, the soul searching over Hiroshima was eclipsed by what's coming next. That, you know, some people saying like Hiroshima's, what we've seen in Hiroshima is America's future. Well, there's, I mean, everything I say in this um, episode is going to come from Lawrence Friedman and Jeffrey Michaels, The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy, which is this big, fat, classic textbook of what we've seen in nuclear strategy since then. It is the book. And that fear that you've just alluded to is there throughout the period right up until now. So they write, the critical reference was to the big picture, the crude representation of the ultimate horror. It was always possible that this horror could be mitigated and the nuclear war would turn out to be not quite as bad as feared, or that one side might emerge proud in victory. But these probabilities could never be rated high, and even the least destructive of nuclear wars would involve a level of grief and mayhem that would go off the scale of human suffering. And that's the thing that faces know, you. Like, no matter who you are, where you are on that scale, and as we'll see through this, even you know political leaders on Soviet and the US side who you wouldn't necessarily instinctively like right. are haunted by the potential. And it all comes from that, you know, the image of the bomb, the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki just stretching out across the second half of the 20th century as we gather more and more nuclear material to fire at each other. So... As a result of this, there is actually a remarkable hit period, 1946-47, where there's a major effort to get an international agreement yes. to abolish atomic weapons, which, of course, only America had at that point. Uh, the American delegate to the UN, Bernard Baruch, uh, presenting the Baruch Plan, said, let us not deceive ourselves. We must elect world peace or world destruction. And you had a lot of people, including Einstein, uh, Leo Szilard, Edward Taller, even arguing that the only solution was a one-world government, mm-hmm. the kind of thing that like, mm-hmm. freaks out conspiracy theorists now. <laughs> it's the only way we could do it. Or at the very least, their compromise was like, well, at least a one-world army. Hmm. You still have separate governments, but we all have to have the same army. This is also the post-war period. You know, you're getting creations you know, across the scale of right. international cooperation, yeah. where there's a real, we cannot let this thing happen again. So those ideas were more normal then than they would be now if you put them in all of Twitter's going to lose its mind because of your fascist tendencies. So this plan falls apart because of the start of the Cold War. There's just a complete lack of trust between America and Russia. David Lilienthal, who headed the Atomic Energy Commission in 1949, wrote in his diary, the view of some of the military is that war is inevitable. The top, however, do not go so far. They believe it's likely in a relatively (laughs) short time, four to five years. Mm Mm-hmm. After it comes, we must use the atomic bomb as we can't hold Europe without it. Mm-hmm. You had other scientists going, and they were wrong, that anybody, any nation that wanted to, could build an atomic bomb by the early 50s. You know, we, I don't think anyone, nobody really realized at the time, like, what an achievement the Manhattan Project was mm-hmm. and how hard mm-hmm. it was and how even it took even Russia another four years and that was because they had spies in the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. So they were basically kind of like cribbing, copying the Americans' homework. 1949, the first Russian test, is a bit that freaks everybody out. Well, it changes everything, right? Like, So until that point, there's a series of propositions that you can say about nuclear weapons. You can say, the bomb exists. It is devastating. Cities are the natural target. There is no obvious defense. 
It can win wars. That part's a bit more questionable, but that's what people assumed. And it's a psychological weapon. Hmm. Primarily, almost exclusively a psychological weapon. Once the Russians get it, there's a new proposition, which is more than one country has it. And everything that follows comes from that calculation. Because as soon as more than one country has it, you end up in a, in a series of kind of suffocating logical conclusions. Right. Conclusion number one is, once two sides have it, you must stay equal. Right? You cannot allow them to have greater destructive potential. You cannot allow them to be able to defend against it. You cannot allow them to have high, of a higher technology with the warheads. So, I mean, Truman, when he's asked about the hydrogen bomb, he says, the, fir the first question he asks is, can the Russians do it? <laughs> and the answer is yes. And Truman's response is, well, in that case, we have no choice. Because we should say about the hydrogen bomb that, that since the war, since even before the atomic bomb had been completed, Edward Teller has got this idea about a hydrogen bomb, which uses fusion rather than fission. Mm -hmm. Again, probably not the time to go in, into the science, but like much, much more powerful. And he's been banging on about this. Lots of people don't, don't want it. Uh, the official committee that's put together, really high-ranking people, scientists and politicians, says, don't build one because it's a, they called it a weapon of genocide. But because of the Russian bomb, Truman again goes, it's politically impossible. Mm -hmm. Like I can't not build it. Yes. And Oppenheimer's opposition to the to the H-bomb is, is essentially what causes the whole kind of red scare persecution of him, destroys his career. Because Oppenheimer, you know, had had sort of dabbled in communism as, mm -hmm. as a young man. I think was clearly not a communist at this point. But when you're getting into the House and American Activities mm. Committee. To take us back to our first episode. To take our first, first ever episode about uh, McCarthyism. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of vindictiveness from people like Edward Teller, from Leslie Groves, the military head of the Manhattan Project. Um, and this, this sort of basically wrecks him. But there's a lot of scientists who, who oppose this. You know, that he was made an example of. But really, there was enormous opposition to the H-bomb because they knew what that meant. And just to give you some some figures here, right? Then there's a Nagasaki blast, which is bigger than the Hiroshima mm -hmm. one. 25 kilotons. So that's 25,000 tons of TNT equivalent. The first H-bomb test in 1952 was 10 megatons. Mm. The biggest ever H-bomb, which Russia tested in 1961, was the largest man-made explosion in history, at least 50 megatons, which is 2,000 Nagasaki's. Now, that is no longer a weapon of war. Mm. It is a weapon of world destruction. Yeah. And this, this changes not just the strategy, but the psychology. Guys, we just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going as we plug away reading these books and just generally bickering at each other with a greater sense of existential despair day on day. So today, I'm going to say thank you to Tanya Jane Park. Thank you, Tanya, very much. Lewis Smith, Dominic Mitchell, James Hunt, and Derek Rathens. Thanks, guys. The second logical conclusion you have to come to is that your only chance now is to try and aim for a strategy of mutual terror. 
level of stability, right? Because you can't undo it. You can't unmake it. You know, there's still people that know how to make it, even if you were to dismantle everything, which you're not going to do because the other side's got it. So you have to go for a kind of balance. And Oppenheimer, he writes, he sums it up really, in 1953, we may anticipate a state of affairs in which the two great powers will each be in a position to put an end to the civilization and life of the other, though not without risking its own. We may be likened to two scorpions in a bottle, mm. each capable of killing the other, but only at the risk of its own life. One of the things that happens here is that on paper, your strategy of balance of terror makes sense. We can destroy you. You can destroy us. Surely that neutralizes the threat. But the thing is that it's such a powerful weapon, back to that original point, its destructive power is so severe, that it's very hard to find stability. So this is from Friedman and Michaels. Stability depends on something that is more the antithesis of strategy rather than its apotheosis. On threats that things will get out of hand, that we might act irrationally, that possibly through inadvertence we could set in motion a process, then in its development and conclusion would be beyond human control and comprehension. So it's always a thing of like, yeah, we'll find stability, but our way of doing that is to make you always think that we could just be lunatic enough to press the button at any given moment. When we say it's a psychological weapon, it's not just psychological in terms of the fear that you produce, it's also psychological in that your entire strategy for using it depends on trying to read the minds of people in another room on the other side of the world who are instinctively opposed to you and thinking, what is it that they're doing right now? So much of what goes on with nuclear war strategy is sort of thinking like, why are they building these warheads? Yeah. What are they doing with their surveillance technology? And, wh and what does that mean? Is that about first strike capacity? Is it about retaliatory strike capacity? And if they're doing that, then shouldn't we actually bolster up our phone? You just ratchet and ratchet and ratchet up on the basis of your fairly well-grounded paranoia. And the thing is that there are these famous figures, Curtis LeMay, who inspired like two different characters in Doctor Strange. <laughs> He was, he'd been responsible. That's a dubious accolade. I know, right? <laughs> he'd been responsible for the firebombing of Tokyo. He was the one that came up with the famous line about, you know, bombing I think Vietnam back to the Stone Age. Oh, right, right. There really weren't many people like that. I, I've, I've assembled a few quotes here from world leaders who are not bleeding heart liberals. Mm -hmm. And this is the other fact about it, is that nobody wants it. Mm -hmm. right? So Truman, starting an atomic war is totally unthinkable for rational men. Stalin, atomic weapons can hardly be used without spelling the end of the world. Khrushchev, only lunatics or suicides who themselves want to perish and destroy the whole world before they die could do this. <laughs> Churchill, I think the earth will soon be destroyed. And if I were the almighty, I would not recreate it in case they destroyed him too next time. Hmm. Eisenhower said to an advisor, and did not say this publicly, you can't have this kind of war. There just aren't enough bulldozers to scrape the bodies off the streets. Mm. In high office in these in these countries, there are no out-and-out warmongers. There are some in the military. But every leader is, even as they escalate and escalate and build more and more bombs, they are terrified. And they're going, well, obviously, only a lunatic will use them. There is um, one guy. He is in the military, as you say. But I like this quote. It's an extraordinary run. He is called, of course, General Power. General Power. <laughs> So in 1957, he had some analysts go to see him and go like, look, just don't target the city. You don't need to target the cities. Target their nuclear sort of capacity, you know, with the strikes. And he says, he replies to them, restraint. Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? The whole idea is to kill the bastards. Look, if at the end of the war, there are two Americans and one Russian, we win. To which one of the analysts, he just gets up, walks out of the room, and as he's, as he's about to step out, he just turns back and looks at him and goes, well, you better make sure that they're a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
The third logical consequence of two countries having the nukes is a really pernicious one. And it's that all of your tactical approach is going to be about surprise. Suddenly, if both got nukes, there's a real onus on being able to be the first to launch the attack to try and eradicate their ability to get to you at all. And this is in State Department Policy Planning Staff Report for the National Security Council in 1950. That's called NSC 68. And it is formal policy. What you're looking for is surprise. And you're aware, and this is the really dangerous psychological sort of process takes in, is that the other side will be thinking the same thing. So when game theory is later, you know, really sort of kicks off in the 60s, but you can see the the level of insanity that is reached by these core propositions. This is Thomas Schelling, game theorist. <laughs> Just list this quote. It's like, you can almost hear him losing his mind as he writes it. If surprise carries an advantage, it is worthwhile to avert it by striking first. Fear that the other may be about to strike in the mistaken belief that we are about to strike gives us a motive for striking and so justifies the other's motive. But if the gains from even a successful surprise are less desired than no war at all, there is no fundamental basis for an attack on either side. What you see there is this sort of thing of like, we all know that as a collectively, as a species, everything that is happening here is lunatic. But our individual motivations, especially when based on capacity and paranoia and secrecy, make it very hard for us to stop ourselves thinking in this way. And it leads us to an outcome that nobody wants. Well, the thing that that really stunned me in the research was that, like, how false the stereotype of the 1950s (laughs) as a very complacent this is one of our core time, themes, right? Yeah, I feel like this comes up every season. Every time. And it's 100% and true. And it's 100% true. So his Nobel Prize speech in 1950, the novelist William Faulkner, our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear so long sustained by now that we can even bear it. There are no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? Oh, fucking And there, are, there is quote after quote like this. So many people... And this is before the uh, this is before the H bomb exists. So after the H bomb, people are just talking as if I don't know. You know, we're not going to make it to the end of the decade. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that this fear became part of American life. There were a couple of people who joined the Rand Corporation, the think tank where Bernard Brody, the inventor of deterrence theory, mm-hmm. worked. It was set up after World War II as a kind of like wargaming, yeah, uh, sort of systems level analysis. Yeah. So, yeah. Two of them, including Daniel Ellsberg, who later leaked the Pentagon Papers, they uh, decided not to sign up to the Rand Corporation's deluxe retirement plan because they didn't expect there would be a world left in which to retire. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to take a minute to thank the Patreon subscribers who do make the podcast possible. Thank you so much to Michael Sindoni, Tyler Chinnick, Tarquin Shrapnel Carruthers, real name, David Tingle, and Tim Collins. Thanks, guys. There is one fourth and final conclusion that you get from two countries having it, and that's it's this place that the human mind goes to over and over and over again, including in our lifetime. And it's like, okay, fine. Well, if we can't stop it this way, can we stop it by limiting the power of the bomb itself? And this goes back again to that first quote, it is devastating. Because every attempt to do this fails. This is called tactical nuclear warfare. So the word strategy and tactics don't have their normal meaning in this. Strategy is basically strategical uh, nuclear warfare. It's basically when you just try and obliterate the whole country. It's city attacks, etc. 
tactical is, is the attempt to use nuclear weapons on the battlefield. Mm. And Oppenheimer's keen on it. I mean, he sees that this is one of the ways we can step back. He says battles could be brought back to the battlefield. And yet every time they try and think their way through it, it just, it just doesn't work. Like they try to model it in any kind of war and you're just like, well, you're just, you, you are necessarily bombing your own troops and you're contaminating the food and the water and the equipment. So you couldn't even bring equipment to them who would be so dispersed. He's like, we just cannot make it work. They do these models with Louisiana, which is picked because it's about the size of Greece and Portugal, imagining the sort of war game exercise in 1955. So they have 70 bombs of no more than a 40 kiloton yield. And it's ruled that, quote, all life had ceased to exist. They just cannot get past the power of it. There's almost this comedy moment where the army chief of staff, who's called Maxwell Taylor, says, he says, look, what I need from these nukes is you've got to make them uh, smaller. I want you to measure them in tons rather than kilotons. I want no fallout. And I want to be able to use them in proximity of my own troops. At which point you just realize, well, you've just reinvented battlefield munitions. You know, what you've just described as conventional warfare. It's just like, that is not what nukes are. No matter how much they try to limit it, the power of this thing is just so severe that you always start escalating upwards towards the obliteration of the earth. In all good podcasts, you'd end with the obliteration of the earth. <laughs> We're going to leave it there, sort of the, the, the cusp of the, of, of the 1950s, because actually at that point, the obliteration of the earth is not a scientific possibility. Mm -hmm. It's a fear. There are things to come, weapons, theories, scenarios, which do actually take you all the way there. So in part two, we will get into the cobalt bomb, the doomsday machine. We will talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. The moment that the world came within a head's breath yeah. of eradicating. Dr. Strangelove which I think is, a, is a, it sort of explains the logic, the mad logic of nuclear deterrence uh, to a lot of people. And then into the 1980s with Ronald Reagan worrying about Armageddon, with uh, the theory of nuclear winter, another way to uh, end the world. And then some good news uh, with, with the end of the Cold War, and then sort of come up to the present day and, and where nuclear weapons and the sort of the politics of fear figure in, in, in geopolitics in over the last 30 years. So join us then uh, for more apocalyptic good stuff. So in the meantime, like and review us on Apple Podcasts or any of your other podcast providers. Go tell your friends about us and tell them how wonderful we are and how it's not remotely depressing to be told at length how the world's going to end. Subscribe. Do all the things that basically on podcasts people tell you to go do to help the podcast. We would much appreciate that. Some people have been asking about our research and the books we've been reading and we list all of the crucial uh, texts on the show notes and on the Patreon page if you want to evidence that we haven't just been making it all up. But we've now amalgamated them so that Dorian can no longer try to publicly shame me by reading one or two pages from a variety of books and stacking them all into a list to make it look like he's working much harder than I am. <laughs> Which I am. <laughs> See you next week, guys. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The producer was Liam Tate and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.